I do have a handout this morning to make it a little easier to stay with me. And if uh, anyone is in need of a handout, we have people ready to uh, give you one. Any, if you raise your hand, if you are in need of a handout, someone will come around and supply you with one. I see no hands. Well, that's great. All right. Well, as we begin, I note that you may have heard it said that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. Well, that is blatantly a false understanding of the Scriptures, and more importantly, a terrible misconception of the person of God. There are not two different gods that are found in the Scriptures. God is long-suffering, gracious, merciful, but he will indeed punish the wicked. And so as we read the Scriptures, we, we find that there is not a dichotomy between the Old Testament and New Testament, but rather a very helpful informing theology that helps us to understand the very character and person of God and especially judgment. We find that God is, I said, long-suffering, gracious, and merciful, but he will not punish the wicked. This morning we're nearing the close of 2 Kings, in which Judah experiences God's long-announced judgment is going to be overthrown by the king of Babylon. As we consider the judgment of God, I don't want us to miss how long-suffering God is with the disobedient and the rebellious. Now, this aspect of God's wrath, we need to understand his grace and his mercy in his bringing judgment to this world. So the theme is, God is long-suffering in judgment, but he will fulfill and preserve his word. What God says he will do. There are a lot of people that are denying even the fact that there is judgment. The Word of God is very clear that a judgment is coming and that all mankind will stand before God and give an account. Those statements are indeed true. As we think about our text, in just 22 years after Josiah's death, Jerusalem will no longer exist as they know it. A lot takes place in a very brief period of time. God has given a long period of warning to Judah of coming judgment. However, when God acts, God acts swiftly. That is one aspect of the importance of understanding the informing theology. There are many judgments that occur throughout the scriptures that lead and point to the ultimate and final judgment. There is a general characteristic that we see, and that is that God announces the coming judgment, and there is a lengthy period of time from the time in which he announces the judgment to the time it actually takes place. He gives people time to repent. He gives people the opportunity to hear and to respond. You think about the flood and the whole building process of the ark and all of the preaching that takes place before the flood actually comes. So we find in the book of Revelation, for example, that he says, behold, I come quickly. And as you read that, you may think, wow, this has been 2,000 years. Well, there's a, a long period of the announcement of coming judgment but when judgment begins, it comes swiftly. When God acts, 
He brings to pass that which is what he says. So now we're going to see that in a brief 22 years that Judah is going to experience this great judgment that God has been announcing down through the ages with the various kings. The kings in the events of the last 22 years of the kingdom can be outlined as follows. And I have that outline there. It comes from uh, Dale Ralph Davis's commentary. I'm not going to go over that this morning, but just to quickly show you that there are a lot of kings that come and go in just 22 years. A lot of things take place. In our text, we find that Jehoiakim reigns a mere 11 years. I'm on page 2. 2 Kings 23, 36. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Now, that's not a long time. 11 years. Only eight verses in 2 Kings are devoted to his reign. We have a cursory summary of Jehoiakim's reign that sounds all too familiar in verse 37. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. We had seen evil king after evil king after evil king after evil king. This long forbearance of God, putting up with the rebelliousness and of the lack of response to his word. So in this 11-year period, a lot of very significant events take place in that brief 11 years. In order to discover all that takes place in these brief 11 verses, one would have to consult 2 Chronicles, many chapters of Jeremiah, and the book of Daniel. There is a lot said about this 11-year period if you look at the totality of the scriptures. Only eight verses in 2 Kings, but if you bring into bear all of the other informing verses, you find out that there's a, quite a lot that the Bible has to say about these 11 years. In fact, it almost goes through them year by year with the different events that are taking place. Hence, the outline of this morning and the reason for the handout. I'm going to look at some of these other portions of Scripture and lay out for you this process of coming judgment with the emphasis upon God's long-suffering nature and what it teaches us about His grace and His goodness. We begin by noting the initial stages of Babylonian captivity begin in fulfillment of God's judgment as revealed by God's word. Jehoiakim became a vassal king under the power and authority of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. So he is, in all intents and purposes, conquered. But as Judah comes under the authority of Babylon, it begins with him being a vassal king, meaning that he is still the king of Jerusalem, but he's under the authority of, of the king of Babylon. He can only do what Babylon allows him to do. He, he's in some ways a figurehead, but uh, he is to carry out the will and the purpose of Nebuchadnezzar. More details are provided in the book of Daniel. We discovered that this incident took place in the third year of Jehoiakim's reign, Daniel 1.1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That is going to be a recurring 
phrase that is going to be extremely important to keep in mind that all of this is being done by the purpose and will of God. It is God who is behind this. It is God who is bringing this captivity to bear. God's judgment is taking place. It cannot be missed. At that time, Daniel and others were deported to Babylon. I didn't look at it, but as you go back and look at that portion, you will find that there are three different deportations that are going to take place in these 22-year period, uh, where people are being moved from uh, Judah to, to Babylon. In the first deportation, which is before us, we read in Daniel 1.3, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the king's chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and nobility, used without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And now to the bold down in verse 6. Among these were Daniel. So here is Daniel's deportation, taken from the land of Judah and brought into uh, Babylon. This is in the third year of Jehoiakim's reign. Secondly, the troubles that were coming upon Judah were consistent with what God had said would occur. Now I'm going to, for the sake of time, just read some of the bold portions that are before you. Uh, well, in this, this instance, I guess I'll read the whole verse. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it. Now this, according to the word of the Lord, that he spoke by his servant, the prophets. This is all in keeping with what God had said. God had warned them. God had taught them. God had said all of these events were going to take place. Now I want to look at some of the places in which God had declared what was going to happen. First, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, God sends Jeremiah to proclaim God's judgment against Judah. Verse 1 of Jeremiah 25. The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Jeremiah 25, 2, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Furthermore, the events were not merely predicted by God, but they are the result of God's word being fulfilled. In other words, it's important to keep in mind that God isn't just giving us an account of what he knows will happen. Uh, this isn't God looking to a, a crystal ball of the future and, and telling us what's going to take place, knowing what the future holds, but it's more than just his awareness. It is that he's bringing it to pass. It's that he's behind it. He's not just foreshadowing what's going to happen. He wants it to be understood that this is happening because he is at work. Notice 2 Kings 24, verse 3. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord. This is God's doing. I have a quote here from uh, Dale Ralph Davis's commentary, which reads, Judah's end was the fulfillment of Yahweh's word 
And in bringing an end to Judah, Yahweh was being faithful to that word. It may seem a negative faithfulness, but it is faithfulness nevertheless. Yahweh is faithful God even when he destroys. So God keeps his word. He keeps his promises, which is what most people tend to focus upon, and his goodness as God keeps his promises and is faithful to all that he says, but God is also faithful concerning judgment and all that he says concerning that as well. God keeps his word, period. What God says he will do, he does. See, God had... Sorry about that. My apologies to the sound booth. All right. C. God had repeatedly spoken to Judah through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25, 3. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you. All the way back in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6, Jeremiah had been giving God's warnings to Judah in time of Jehoiakim's father. So from Jeremiah 3, 6, all the way up to Jeremiah chapter 25, that's why I say, if you look at all these, these chapters, there's so much material there. But in Jeremiah 3, 6, the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, that is the father of Jehoiakim. D, all through the years, the people have stubbornly, repeatedly resisted what God had to say. Jeremiah 25, 3, for 23 years from the beginning, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, came Judah to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. Again, the emphasis is that God habitually and doggedly spoke to the nation through his prophets. God was incredibly long-suffering and patient. He was also extremely gracious in warning of judgment to come. Notice verse 4, the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants. His prophets. He, he didn't quit. Time and time again, he is sending not only one prophet, but prophets to declare what is going to take place. Nevertheless, the people had just as consistently refused to listen to what God had said. Verse 4, you have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear. Jeremiah 25, 4. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although, notice the contrast, although the Lord persistently sent you all his servants as the prophets. So it isn't on just one occasion that they have resisted. It isn't just on one occasion they closed their ears. 
but repeatedly, constantly. They just want nothing to do with this. It's like the person who has heard the gospel time and time and time again. And even though they hear the gospel repeatedly, they just close their ears to it. They, they don't want to repent. They don't, they don't want anything to do with it. And God says there's going to be a coming judgment. There, there's going to be a, a recompense for those that haven't placed their faith and trust in Christ. But they close their ears. Gee, God repeatedly encouraged the people to repent of their sinful ways. Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds. And if they repent, things will go well with them. Jeremiah 25, 5. Turn now, every one of you, from his way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given you and your fathers from old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. All of this can be avoided. God is saying, all of this will not take place if you just simply repent. Here's the grace of God. Here's the offering of forgiveness. Here is pardon being extended. I will do you no harm. You can stay in the land. You can live here. Just repent. Worship me. Don't go after these other gods. And still the people continued to fail to repent. Jeremiah 25, 7, yet, yet, even though you have not listened to me. Therefore, Babylon would come against them. Jeremiah 25, 8 and following. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. But even in the grace of God, he does that in three phases. He's long-suffering. He's patient. And I have here note, Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as God's servant. That is, God is using Nebuchadnezzar to accomplish God's purpose. And for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. This is God's will being carried out. God did as he said he would do is the point. God is behind Nebuchadnezzar's actions. 2 Kings 24.1, in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant, next to bold, and the Lord sent against him and verse 22, and sent them against Judah to destroy it. God sent them, God sent them, God sent them. It is God's activity that's being stressed time and time and time again. This is what God is doing. Second Kings 24, 3. Surely this came upon Judah as the command of the Lord. How can you miss it? He wants them to know that this isn't bad luck. This isn't just poor leadership on the part of Jehoiakim. This isn't just the way life is. This is God actively at work bringing a nation against them with the intent of removing the people of Judah from its land and destroying the city. Next, God informs the people that he would send them into exile 70 years. However, there would be an end in sight. 
Jeremiah 25, 11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. At the end of that 70-year captivity, God would bring judgment against Babylon, Jeremiah 25, 12. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the Lord of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity. Declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. So there is this lengthy prophecy of Jeremiah about what's going to happen to Babylon. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be taken over. And the Jewish people are going to be now returning from the land and they're going to come back because God is gracious and God is loving. God is good as God is kind and he's going to restore them to the land and the city is going to be rebuilt and, and the temple is going to be rebuilt that's been destroyed and, and there's an end in sight for God is gracious. Number three, now we consider in greater detail how both Jehoiakim and the people resisted God's word. Or it is, it is rather telling and frightening. I, I want you to see how long-suffering God is and how rebellious and wicked the people really are. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign, God would come to Jeremiah which was that uh, God's word came to Jeremiah, which was then written on a scroll, Jeremiah 45, 1. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. So in the fourth year, God provides this scroll. In the fifth year, of Jehoiakim's reign. The scroll is read publicly. Jeremiah 36.9. See how you have to jump all over to make this chronology. But Jeremiah 36.9. In the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. Then in the hearing of all the people, Baruch read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll in the house of the Lord. So they have gathered together for worship. But we must understand... I've lost the, that mic. They can pick me up on that one. Okay. So we need to understand that even in the reforms of Josiah, when these covenants are made that uh, the people would walk with the Lord, we find out that those covenants aren't kept. Uh, Josiah is very, very sincere in wanting the nation to walk with God, and he brings about outward reform. We find out that the, the people's hearts aren't changed. You can't legislate righteousness. You can govern and limit people's behaviors, but you can't change hearts. Constantine was known as this, this great Christian emperor who, who wanted to establish a Christian city, Constantinople. And he's famous for marching his army through a river to baptize his entire army. Well, you can make people wet, but you can't cause them to have faith. 
And so here are these people who are, who are gathered for worship, but whose hearts are far from God. And this book is read. Jeremiah 36, 9, fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of jo- Josiah of Judah in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. There in the hearing of the people, Baruch read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll in the house of the Lord. Eventually, God's word is read to Jehoiakim, old print. And Jehudi read it to the king and all the officials who stood before the king. Jehoiakim is angered by the scroll's contents and seeks to destroy it. I alluded to this last week as well. Jeremiah 36, 22, it was in the ninth month and the king was sitting in the winter house and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire, in the fire pot, until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. So he wants nothing to do with this. In fact, when God graciously provides this scroll that can be read and reread, he seeks to destroy it. The king is not at all worried about his brazen opposition to God's word, verse 24. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. They didn't repent, and they weren't worried about what they had just done. Jehoiakim would not even heed the warnings of his officials not to destroy the scroll. Verse 25, even when Elnathan and Delilah and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. He did have people saying, this is not a good idea, king. You don't want to do that. You don't want to burn that scroll. Wouldn't listen. Then Jehoiakim orders Jeremiah to be arrested. Verse 26, and the king commanded to seize Baruch the secretary and Jeremiah the prophet. So not only does he resist and have the scroll burned, but now he wants to arrest the prophet. He wants to bring an end to this message. However, God protects Jeremiah. But the Lord hid them. Or hid them. Baruch and Jeremiah. Now, aside... Why it is so important to look at the whole counsel of God. Why you take time to read all of God's word and not just a a portion of God's word. So many people only read the New Testament, never read the Old Testament. And they fail to understand so much about the person and character of God. Likewise, if you only look at one portion of scripture, it's easy to make some very false applications. And one of them is that if you are faithful to God, he will always watch over and protect you. Look at what happens here. Jeremiah is hid. Jeremiah is protected. Jeremiah is saved. You do the right thing and everything turns out okay in the end. That's not true. That's not true. Number one, But God does not always spare his faithful people from experiencing death for their faith. Jeremiah 26, 20. There was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim. He prophesied against the city and against this land in words like those of Jeremiah. 
He was sent with the same message. Remember, prophets are sent. And when King Joachim, with all his warriors and all his officials, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard of it, he was afraid and fled and escaped to Egypt. Then King Joachim sent to Egypt certain men, Elnathan the son of Achmor and others with him, and they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with a sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. But the hand of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah so that he was not given over to the people to be put to death. Notice how the scriptures put these two events together. Here is the importance of understanding the totality of God's word. God can and does preserve his people, sometimes from death and others through death. Note Hebrews chapter 11, if you're familiar with that portion of scripture. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us the heroes of the faith and all of the wonderful things that happen. But it concludes with, but then there are others. And they suffer, they die, they are struck down. God's people do not have all of life experiences in common. Some people die a restful, peaceful death. Some people just die in their sleep. Others have hideous disease. You know, some believers are shot seemingly at random. There are believers, I'm sure, that have died in these wildfires in Maui. God is gracious to his people. God is with them when he spares them from hardship and difficulty, but God is with them also in their deaths. And we looked at Isaiah that said that we don't consider the death of the righteous and all that it means. But all of God's people experience God's grace. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when men shall revile and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. For great is your reward in heaven. Paul dies a martyr. All of the apostles die as martyrs except for John, who is banished and dies on the, the, the Isle of Patmos. I want us to, to consider, number four, God's gracious response to the burning of his word, this intense opposition to his word. God's faithful response is seen in bringing judgment to Jehoiakim who burned God's word. Verse 29, here's the negative side. And concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll. Verse 29, thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut off from it man and beast? He doesn't like this prophecy. He says, why did you say that? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning joy of the king of Judah, he shall have none to sit on the throne of David and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and the frost by night. He did not repent. He did not hear. He burned it. 
But note this, because we're, we're emphasizing the grace and goodness and compassion of God even in the time of judgment. Jehoiakim gets his thumbs up, as it were, but God graciously and faithfully restores and preserves his word which Jehoiakim sought to destroy. Jeremiah 36, 27, and 28. Now, after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word came to Jeremiah, take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned. God wasn't going to allow that to stand. He wasn't going to allow his word to ultimately be destroyed. He replaces it. That is a merciful and gracious God. He replaces his word. And aside, I want us to consider God's gracious and faithful preservation of his word down through the centuries. For there have been many people who have intentionally or unintentionally destroyed God's word, but it comes down to us today. Moses sinfully, but not rebelliously, dashes in pieces the stones containing the Ten Commandments that God had graciously provided. I want us to get the overarching picture here of all that the Old Testament is teaching us about God's word and about judgment and grace and goodness. Exodus 31, 18. And he, that is God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. These tablets were a prized possession that should have been valued and kept. And I put kept in quotations because it's a play on words. For these commandments should not only have been obeyed, but, but they should have been cherished. They should have been treasured. What a gift that God gives to Moses to give him this word written on, the, on, on these clay tablets by God's own finger, by, by God just miraculously having these words appear on these tablets. Notice Exodus 32, 16. The tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. What a precious gift as Moses is walking down the mount carrying this word to his people. Then Moses encounters the sin that is broken out in the camp. Exodus 32, 17, when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, this is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of despair, but the sound of singing that I hear. Moses then sinfully, rashly, and thoughtlessly destroyed the Ten Commandments. Verse 19, as soon as he came near, the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them. 
at the foot of the mountain. That was an incredibly bad move on the part of Moses. Man, what was he thinking? Or what wasn't he thinking? What wasn't he guarding? What wasn't he protecting? These precious tablets written by the very finger of God. And he dashes them to pieces. God graciously replaces the clay tablets. Exodus 34, 1. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets. He replaces them. God also reminds Moses of what had happened to the original tablets. End of verse 1. Which you broke. You broke. I'm going to replace them. Remember, you broke them. Here is the connection to Jehoiakim. Jeremiah 36, 29, concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll. You see the connection? Now, they're very, very different people. And I'm not saying that the motivation of Moses is anything like that of the motivation of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is, is wickedly, rebelliously wanting to destroy this word. Jehoiakim, but Moses, well, he, he loses his temper and he throws these down because of the sinfulness of the people. But the point is that what they have in common was a sinful response to his word. God preserves his word. See, what, do, what does God's prevention of his word teach us about the character of God? So Moses prepares to meet with the Lord. Exodus 34, 2. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me in the top of the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up onto the Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. For Moses had wanted to see the glory of the Lord. Now Moses and we are introduced to the long-suffering person and character of God. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Slow to anger. Verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. We are not to miss the dissimilarity, the contrast between Moses and God. Moses' anger was quick to flame up, and his anger was intense, which led to the destruction of the tablets. Exodus 32:19. Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands. And broke them. Now Moses wasn't always a hothead. Uh, Numbers 12.3. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Moses is a good guy, all right? And, you know, you wouldn't want to be in Moses' shoes having to lead the children of Israel. There was a lot to provoke him. 
Well, he did get provoked. And that provocation did result in sin and ultimately even keeps him from the promised land or he struck the rock that he should have just spoken to because again, he lost his cool and he was frustrated with the people. God, on the other hand, is slow to anger. The same Hebrew word that is used of Moses, but in stark contrast. Where it says of God in verse 6, that God is slow to anger. And in being slow to anger, look at the other characteristics in verse 6. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, including Moses's. God, who is long-suffering and gracious, restores his word. Though God is long-suffering and gracious, he still will bring judgment against the unrepentant, who will by no means clear the guilty. Those two characteristics are not antithetical to each other in the sense that they, they cannot live together side by side. So God does, in fact, restore the scroll that Jehoiakim destroyed, Jeremiah 36, 32. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it, at the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. God also brings judgment against Jehoiakim, as he already has seen. Application. Number one. God's word will never be ultimately destroyed. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Period. Period. It withstands the stupidity of God's people when we don't treasure it and... and uh, love it and adore it the way that we should, it stands against all the opposition of the wicked that would want to do away with it. We have God's word today. And every generation is going to have God's word. He promises it. Psalm 100. And his truth endures to every generation. God abides faithful. He keeps his word. And not only does he keep it in the sense that he does what he says, but he keeps it in the sense of preserving it. So that there will always be a testimony to who he is and how he acts. Secondly, God's word will also be fulfilled. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word will come to pass. Everything that he says, 
everything. All the promises and all the judgments. You can have absolute confidence in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and all the events that are going to be associated with it and the final victory that's going to be accomplished. For God's word will be fulfilled. And he gives us example after example after example to demonstrate the truthfulness of it. In the book of Peter, God warns that people are just ignorant. They close their eyes to the activity of God. All of the judgments of God in the Old Testament are just a foreshadowing of the ultimate and final judgment that is yet to come. All of the judgments in the Old Testament point to the fact that God does, in fact, judge. And all of those judgments also depict the goodness and graciousness and the long-suffering nature of God's dealing with his people. In the time of Noah, even. In the time of Job. In the time of Lot, where God sends angels that literally carry Joseph and his family out of this, uh, Lot and his, and his family out of the city because they are unwilling to go. They pick them up and carry them out. That's our God. That's his graciousness. God then uses that same word to bring hope and instruction to Daniel and even to us. Daniel 9, 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Azurus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the dissolutions of Jerusalem, namely 70 weeks. He knew. He had the words of Jeremiah the prophet. That word that was sought to be destroyed that spoke of this Babylonian captivity of 70 years, he had a copy. God had restored it. He had the privilege of sitting and reading it, and it says the books. And I personally think that it's referring to not just the scriptures, but also the histories. And as he read the edicts, as he thought about the kings that had come and gone, as he's now in the first year of the reign of this Median king, he puts it all together and says, wow, we're in this 70th year. God's word is going to be fulfilled. God is going to restore it. And Daniel's heart is lifted up and it's going to move him to pray and it's going to move him to trust and it's going to move him to be obedient. For he understands and appropriates the word of God who had been kept 
Notice he understood by reading it, it wasn't a direct revelation from God. It wasn't a vision. It wasn't a dream. It was his result in the word of God and the books that would help him understand that word. God was gracious. God is good. We are such a blessed people today. For we have his word. Reserved for us. And down through the ages, so many people have tried to keep that word from us. There have been people who gave their lives in order to translate the word of God into the language of the people. Those martyrs' blood is behind the very copies of the scriptures that we possess today. Some people lament because we don't have the original autographs. I point out to you today, nor did Daniel, and nor did the subsequent generations to Moses. As God replaced his word to Moses, as God has replaced his word in the time of Jehoiakim, God has replaced his word to us. We have faithful copies of what God has given and declared. His word is true. In conclusion, first, God is long-suffering in judgment, but he in fact judges. Again, I implore, and I plead with anyone this morning who is here, and you have sat through message after message that has invited you to place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus as your Savior. If you haven't, God has been so long-suffering and gracious. But it will come to an end. And when he acts, he acts swiftly. Repent. Believe. Trust his word. God's warnings need to be heeded. God's word will be, be fulfilled. Both the positives and the negatives. I serve on a study committee right now that is writing a paper regarding the existence of hell. Or there are so many in our day that don't believe in a hell. Quite frankly, if you don't believe in a hell, I don't know why you believe in heaven. It's the same God who's declared the reality of heaven that declared the reality of hell. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Either God's word is true and reliable or it's untrue and unreliable. Our God graciously tells us about hell. He warns us of a coming judgment. It is God's goodness that he tells us. Not only does he tell us, but he strives with us. Spirit moves and convicts. 
Don't lose sight of the graciousness, the long-suffering, the passionate God that judges. And lastly, again, God's word will not only be fulfilled, but it will be preserved. Not one jot or one tittle will pass away from the word of God. Those are words of inscription. Uh, jot refers to the points that exist in Hebrew. A tittle is just a little mark at the end of a Hebrew letter. <clears throat> so when you think of a dot, think of our eye with a dot on top. You think of a tittle, think of a, a T that's crossed. God says, not a dot on an I, not a cross on a T will be done away with. I will preserve. I will keep my word. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray you would help us this morning. And if there's anyone here that stands in need of Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they would open their hearts and yield and place their faith and trust in Jesus, having heard time and time and time again the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, once again, I'm, I'm going to ask, is there anyone here that today want to place their faith and trust in the Savior? You have heard who know what that means. If today is the day of salvation for you, would you quickly raise your hand to acknowledge your desire to place your faith and trust in Christ? Our Father, we ask, we commit unto you and know that your word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, your word will accomplish its purpose and its end. So help us to be faithful to that word. Help us to cherish it. Help us to proclaim it. Help us to keep it, not in the sense of simply obey it, but, but Lord, help us to treasure it and share it with others. And know that this is not just for us, but it's for the world. May we take your word to others. Lord, Help us to read it. Help us to long to know it and understand it. Lord, transform us. Sanctify us through thy truth. Thy word is truth. How shall young man cleanse his way but by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sit against thee. O oh Lord, bless your word to our hearts. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.